Not at all last, not at all least, we focus on Syria and Lebanon. And our chairperson for this session is Martha Kessler, career civil servant in the United States government, long in the national security affairs arena and the intelligence community with the CIA, also an author of a superb monograph on Syria that was published about 15 years ago for the Council on Foreign Relations. Martha Kessler. Um, thank you very much. And thank you to the Council and to you, John, for inviting me to host this panel. Um, and to this audience, I've decided that you are either the real stalwarts who deeply care about these issues or you are the ones most anxious to go to the Saudi reception, one or the other. But we're here to discuss two countries which, in my view, um, don't get the, the attention they deserve given their strategic um, location in the Middle East and their very tight linkage to virtually every major U.S. security concern in the region. And I think this is especially a, a moment when fresh ideas, the theme of this, uh, this conference, uh, and new approaches are especially needed in Lebanon because it does face political gridlock and at a deeper level needs to transcend its confessionalism. And in Syria because for the first time in a very long time we have a real chance with the Obama administration to pursue a rapprochement with Syria. And I think our, our panel is especially um, qualified to give you this perspective. We have His Excellency Dr. Imad Mustafa, who is the Syrian ambassador to the United States, who has introduced a Syrian voice in Washington and an energy and perspective that has been long missing. We have Dr. Lori King, who is notably qualified to give you a fresh perspective because she is an anthropologist and because of the ground truth that she's gained from her research in the region. And finally, Dr. Graham Bannerman, a longtime friend of mine, also um, gives a special perspective. He has served in both the U.S. Congress and in the executive. He has an intelligence background as well as an educa uh, educational background, academic background, and um, he's now in the private sector, so he brings a lot of perspectives. Our panel, at the end of the day, has decided that we'd like to remain sitting rather than going to the podium. I don't mind, whatever you want. Okay. And so we will start with um, Mr. Ambassador. Well, uh, thank you, Martha. You are a dear friend. I hope I'm not throwing your rep reputation by saying this. And thank you, thank you also, Jean-Duc Anthony, for giving me this annual opportunity to talk to your audience here. I recall uh, very well last year when you invited me to talk here, it was a, a, a very different context, almost on the bitter side because of the, the, the uh, uh, dramatic deterioration in relations between the the uh, former uh, U.S. administration, the uh, Bush administration and Syria. Now things have changed, changed to a, a degree that I recall uh, uh, four months ago, I went with my wife to have sushi at a Japanese restaurant at, uh, Wisconsin, in Wisconsin Street. And there I popped into a former State Department official 
despite despite the the former context of, of animosity, he was he was gracious. He 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 chatted with me nicely, and then he said to me, "You must be very bored now, Mr. Ambassador." I said to him, "Why?" He told me, "Because you can't tell nasty jokes about the administration anymore." <laughs> and I have to admit, he was right. Life is, has become a little bit on the boring side. Uh, 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 after the US, American people decided uh, to vindicate America by uh, uh, by uh, uh, electing President Obama, and because I was very bored, I went two weeks ago to attend uh, uh, a debate at the Wilson Institute uh, regarding prospects for peace in the Middle East. It was a very interesting debate. So actually, uh, it totally freed me from my boredom. It, it, it had as a moderator. Uh, uh, um, David Aaron Miller and two two gentlemen on both sides of the uh, of the aisle, Elliot Abrams, you know him very well, and Professor Bob Pastor, who is a political consultant to uh, former President Carter and a professor at the American University, and they were discussing possibilities for peace or otherwise in the Middle East. Uh, 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 the, by the end of this very interesting session, uh, a friend asked me, so. How did it go? How was it? I told him, well, there was an, a pessimist and two optimists. He said, what do you mean? I said, uh, well, David Aaron Miller was a pessimist. He was convinced that the prospects for peace in the Middle East were very dim. Bob Pastor was an optimist. He, he firmly believed that there is a historic opportunity to make peace in the Middle East. And of course, Elliot Abrams was also an optimist. He, he strongly believed that there is no possibility whatsoever to make peace in the Middle East. Uh, peace in the Middle East. Uh, well, my friend asked me then, and what about you? Are you an optimist or a pessimist? I told him I'm an opti-pessimist. Uh, I'm an optimist because I believe that it's inevitable. It's a historic inevitability that eventually the Palestinian people will have their indelible, legitimate, natural rights and will become, at one point in history, an independent, sovereign, viable state. Occupation cannot continue forever. It's a perverse state that is, is inevitable to end. Having said this, what do you expect? What prospects of peace do you expect when you have a, a cabinet today in Israel who, who's, who has a prime minister Benjamin Netanyahu, that is considered the second most moderate individual in his whole cabinet. Uh, uh, because I'm not a native English speaker, I went, I, I, I encountered the other day a, a word that I did not know its meaning, oxymoron. So I went to the Merriam-Webster for its, to, to, to look for it, and there I, I, I found the, the definition of oxymoron as conjoining two contradictory terms, such as Benjamin Netanyahu engaging in peace talks. <laughs> the prospects are really dim. And what we have heard from the Mitchell talks are not very encouraging. And actually, what, what is puzzling us is that the whole, the whole Arab-Israeli conflict, the whole uh, uh, core issue, the, the Palestinian issue, has become whether Israel should continue to build more and more illegal settlements or should freeze those settlements. And of course, when, when we hear this, when we look at this, we feel a little bit on the pessimistic side, despite our 
fundamental original optimism that eventually, eventually, the Palestinian people will regain their rights. Eventually, Syria and Lebanon will get back their occupied territories. Uh, uh, this is a, a, a historical path that cannot be stopped forever. Uh, when will this happen? It will depend on the other side. Uh, uh, rightly or wrongly, our perception today is that there is no constituency for peace in Israel. Mm. Uh, uh, the fact that they have decided to elect this, the parties that form this current government uh, uh, ex explains exactly what I'm trying to tell you. Uh, we, having said this, there is a constituency for peace in Israel that is not a majority as of yet. It will continue to grow till it reaches a tipping point after which peace can become possible. When Israel will realize that it has to allow uh, 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 an independent, sovereign Palestinian state and end the occupation of the Lebanese and Syrian territories. Having said this, as I have started discussing, relations between Syria and the United States are having a different course, a different nature today. I'm not saying that uh, a, a, a dramatic change has happened. I'm just saying that the style and the, 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 the approach is so different today. I recall as of the very early days of, of the new administration, when I met with officials from the new administration, they told me that the instructions of President Obama to them vis-a-vis -vis Syria were the following. From now on, whatever differences we might have with Syria, and they qualified what they were telling me by saying, and they are serious differences, when we have a problem with Syria, we will sit with you and discuss this problem with you. But we will never go publicly and, and, and lambast you through the media or, 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 or through the, the public channels. If from now on, we have a problem with you, we sit with you, we discuss this problem with you, we work together towards addressing this problem. And of course, there are many problems between Syria and the United States. They are, by the way, None of them are bilateral problems. They are all, without a single exception, related to the Arab-Israeli conflict. This is why we believe in Syria that, despite the fact that relations did actually improve between Syria and the United States, but the major stumbling block would always be the Arab-Israeli conflict. Israel and Israel uh, 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 refusal, refusal to engage in a peace process. Uh, of course, sometimes we feel so disappointed with U.S. positions on issues. As an example, two days ago, the Secretary of State was calling for uh, declaring the Korean Peninsula as a, a, a region free of all weapons of mass destruction. When Syria tabled a, a resolution at the United Nations Security Council asking, asking for for the Security Council to declare the Middle East a region totally free of all weapons of mass destruction, biological, chemical, and nuclear, the United States immediately opposed this. So while the United States thinks that it's, it's good to have one region in the world free of all weapons of mass destruction, it does not believe that it should apply the same standard on another region, which happens to be our region, for a simple reason, of course, which is that today Israel happens to have the world's largest per capita nuclear arsenal. If you divide the number of nuclear warheads possessed by Israel on its population, you will understand what I mean. Uh, 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 other disappointments 
are aplenty. I don't want to enumerate them. I'm not in a spirit or a mood of being critical or telling nasty jokes anymore. But as I'm trying to remind you that the, the obstacles are there and they are serious. Uh, 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 I, I alluded to the fact that the discussion now is, is, has become constric- constricted to whether Israel should be permitted to build more and more illegal settlements or should freeze their illegal settlements. Uh, another example has to do with, 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 the, with the Goldstone report. As you all know, uh, 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 it's not only the Goldstone Committee. It's two Israeli, please do remember this, two Israeli human rights organizations, your own human rights watch, and the internationally renowned Amnesty International, all of them, in addition to, to a plethora of smaller human rights organizations, all of them agreed that Israel has committed war crimes and crimes against humanity in Gaza. And yet, the United States is opposing any discussion of such a report to a degree that it is undermining its Arab allies because it is asking them to postpone any discussion of this report in a way that is damaging to its own allies and friends in the Arab world. I don't want to, to, to give a lengthy speech. Martha is already upset uh, with, with uh, my uh, continuous rambling. What I want to say is the following. The, yes, hope is there, but the challenges are very serious, and we have not yet sensed a realistic uh, a, a, a possibility of moving forward. It might be there. Potentially, it is there. The goodwill of the Obama administration is there. We should not undermine this. Having said this... Goodwill is not enough. It does not suffice to make progress on the ground. What we need really, what we are looking for really, is leadership, vision, and, and, uh, and uh, uh, the, possibility, the possibility to take, to take a stance, to, 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 to take a position that will allow us to go beyond this, uh, uh, this, this uh, point of no progress. Uh, I'm sure people will also like to discuss uh, uh, Syrian policies and positions towards a a variety of issues, our relations with not only the Obama administration, but also probably with uh, 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 France, with Lebanon, with Saudi Arabia, with uh, with, uh, Turkey, you name it, with Iraq. Uh, I will leave this to the Q&A session so that I only address the issues that the audience are specifically interested in. Thank you very much. I'll stop here. Lori? Good afternoon or good evening, everybody. Um, I would like to say that I'm very honored and pleased to be here at the conference this evening because 21 years ago exactly the very first job I ever had after university was with the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations. So I know that all of the young people who work for Dr. Anthony have done an incredible amount of work, and I think that we should all applaud them right now. I remember how much work and effort would go into these events and how Dr. Anthony was such a great taskmaster, and you would learn so much from him about the logistics of these things as well as the regional realities. And what occurs to me to come back and be involved in a National Council event 21 years later is that despite so many changes in the world and so many cataclysmic 
transformations in all parts of the globe. We come back to the Middle East and if anything, it would appear to me that the situation is perhaps even more dire now than it was when I worked for the National Council in the last year of the Reagan administration and the first year of George Bush Sr.'s administration. Um, in the interim, I've lived in Israel where I did my PhD research under a Fulbright grant about Palestinian citizens of Israel, their identity formation, their participation in and maneuverings within the Israeli system. And then I kind of became an accidental Lebanon spokesperson or analyst because my ex-husband was from Lebanon and we ended up living in Lebanon for five years, um, working at a variety of places. And when I first went to Lebanon, United States citizens were not really supposed to be there. I mean, they would kind of look the other way and not give you too many problems. But um, after checking with the U.S. Embassy, I discovered that one could actually become a Lebanese citizen and not lose one's American passport. So that is actually what I did. So I'm here today as an American citizen, a proud one at that. But I also have still, despite my marriage not working out, I still actually have my Lebanese citizenship. Um, so what I'd like to do is just say that often when I come to events in Washington where Lebanon is being discussed, or when I turn on the television and see Lebanon being discussed, or even, unfortunately, quite frequently, um, people reporting from on the ground in Lebanon when bombing is taking place, when lives are being lost. Sometimes I don't really recognize the Lebanon that figures in the American popular imagination or that is such a key part of U.S. foreign policy and even military policy. And that's not too unusual in that there are many, very many Lebanons. You've got 18 different confessional groups within the country. You have quite um, complex and nuanced class strategy, or strat strategy, okay, but you know, What's the word I'm thinking of? Structure. Structure, stratification. Stratification is the word that I'm thinking of. Um, you have people who have lived outside of Lebanon in the vast and deep and famous Lebanese diaspora all over the world who have gone back and forth. So within Lebanon, you can't really say there is a typical Lebanese person. Just as when I was in Lebanon and people would talk about the American people, I think, well, wait, 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 who's this typical American person? Is it an Irish cop or an African-American school teacher? Is it a Native American? Is it an Asian American? Is it somebody whose family came over on the Mayflower or someone who just took the oath of citizenship who came from Nicaragua? I mean, who is this average American? Obviously, we can look around the room and it would be very hard to generalize who or what is this average mystical, mythical, American. The same goes for Lebanon. Um, I think there's just way too much idealization of Lebanon that goes on in policy circles, in military analysis, and certainly in think tanks and on the media. And there's also a lot of demonization that goes on about Lebanon. Um, so I'm here today before you not as a policy analyst so much, and certainly not as a diplomat, uh, but really as Professor, Professor Davis said on the previous panel about Iraq, I am also an anthropologist. 
So I guess I'm here before you today really as an ethnographer and what I'd like to do is to say that there are these different Lebanons, that we have to recognize all these different Lebanons, and perhaps the best way to go about that is to begin to question the models that we have, especially here in Washington, as policymakers, as analysts at think tanks, as journalists, as scholars, as researchers. We should start looking at the models that we have of Lebanon and of Syria and asking if it is not indeed time to revisit those models and to try to get, as anthropologists, try to get the insider's view of how people really feel on the ground. So we as anthropologists, we approach any situation as being analytically separable into modes of organization, social, political, economic, and frames of meaning. All right, so the kinds of narratives that make sense to people, the sorts of things that resonate, the way that people join together in their mind their emotional, moral, and you know, psychological sense of who they are and where they're going and what they want. And I find that, especially after the last eight years in this city, that those kinds of models based on some kind of an ethnographic awareness of what people are actually going through have slipped away. And since the theme of this conference is to think about new ways of looking at the region in general, and certainly I think the um, implicit theme here, and I missed the morning session so maybe this has already been elaborated upon, is to try to give representatives of the new administration um, you know, a new cognitive map, or at least maybe the tools to help them build a new cognitive map of the region. And perhaps an anthropological approach can be useful in that way because many people say that anthropologists are the miniaturists of the social sciences. So we'll do a very intense look at a particular situation over a period of time in what they call, in the biz, participant observation to get an idea of the fine-grained everyday realities of interaction, communication, debate. Um, in other words, I guess what they call in the Department of Defense world, world granularity. I know that's a big word now in the military, trying to get the granularity of the situation um, into one's sights. So when we do that in Lebanon, we have to, I believe, put aside right from the outset some of the conventional, almost knee-jerk models that we have about Lebanon and, as I said earlier, the idea that we tend to idealize or demonize um, Lebanon itself or particular players in Lebanon. And what I'd point out here is that there really has been um, too much of an emphasis on demonizing the main group in Lebanon, which is Hezbollah, and also demonizing the Syrian involvement in Lebanon over several decades. Um, and I'm not here to present a political argument for any particular party um, or to excuse anything that's been done over the years, but simply to say it's time to really start having a more ethnographic approach to matters, to consider the models we have and build some new ones. So I'd like to actually at this point say that the National Council um, in its work over the last 30 years. Is it 35 now or 30? 27. 
Oh, 27, okay, right. 27 years that by sending college professors, congressional staffers, high school honor students to various places in the Arab world, um, that the council has really made a great contribution to giving America new leaders, current leaders, who have had that opportunity to go there and begin to build their own model of what's going on to begin to build their own view through actual interactions with people, through actual circumstances, um, to develop relationships. And I think that this is so crucial, to have relationships, to listen to everybody, to dialogue and to debate. And as uh, the ambassador just noted, I think we see within the new Obama administration more emphasis being put on that dimension of the US role in the world, which is Welcome. I would say that's very welcome. So what I thought I might do um, is to briefly, and I guess I've got maybe, what, seven minutes, um, give you some little slices of ethnographic experience in Lebanon to drive home my point already made that you can't hope to understand what Lebanon is or get a thumbnail sketch of the typical Lebanese or take the temperature on the Lebanese street in 15 minutes. I mean, most of you here already know that. I won't belabor the point. But we do have to look at Lebanon as a place where paying attention to the specificities, the fine-grained nature of everyday life, what people are saying, how they're talking about things, is not just, um, as some people would say, too narrow or too focused an approach to make any useful generalizations. You often hear that about anthropology, about ethnography. It's like very deep, it's very focused, but it's not really useful for generalized um, hypotheses. I would beg to differ because I think it's through the very local, through the very everyday, that you can actually see and comprehend the national, the regional, and the global in what it does and how it plays out in people's lives. Um, I'll give you just one very good example that for me was a way of understanding what was going on in Lebanon was somehow through some great creative ability of the Lebanese, every week there would be a new Abu Labid joke. Okay, a new Abu Labid joke which would sum up political realities, which would make pointed commentary, and which would poke fun at you know, all players in Lebanon, as well as the Syrians and the Americans. So paying attention to things like that are quite crucial. Um, I think that I've been told I can't really give you a lot of ethnographic detail. Uh, but what I would like to say is that right now, when we look at Lebanon, and especially from the viewpoint of the Obama administration, I don't really feel Lebanon is so much at the top of the agenda. It seems that what's happening is that Lebanon is being seen as something that will be dealt with not after dealing with what is now the main policy agenda item, which I think we could all agree is Iran. That seems to be the main primary leading focus of what's going on in the administration. So it seems there's a sense that whatever happens in Lebanon will be parceled out or will come out in the wash, as they say, of whatever happens with Iran. 
I would say that's really not a notion that's based in empirical realities. And I think it bespeaks a sense that Lebanon and Hezbollah are identical and that thus dealing with Iran means you're dealing with Hezbollah. I think that's far too simplistic and I think it also brings us back to the idea that we either demonize or idealize Hezbollah. Either they're the A-team of terrorism, they're a threat to everything in the United States, um, or, and you see this from many people who would have been the Arab nationalists of yesteryear, saying that you know they're the last voice of defense of the Arab cause. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we can we can debate, which we will in the question and answer session. So on the ground in Lebanon, it's important for American policymakers to know that. Hezbollah has something that's really much more powerful than a military arsenal. And Hezbollah is not necessarily some entity that is controlled from Iran. Hezbollah has a moral argument. Hezbollah has a compelling narrative. And that is why it is strong today in Lebanon and why people throughout the region, whether they're Arabs or not, whether they're Sunni or Shia or Christian, have a certain regard for um, Hezbollah and maybe in some respects tend to idealize it a bit. But what I would say if we're talking about providing a new cognitive map for the administration um, regarding Lebanon and regarding um, the way different groups throughout the region and the world have used Lebanon as something of a stage. As they say, when I lived in Lebanon, I was there during 1996, the Grapes of Wrath extravaganza, and a lot of people are complaining, not on the level of pro-American, pro-Israel, anti-American. I mean, their main concern was Lebanon is always the international playing ground. And Mil'abdouli. Everybody comes here to fight out their battles. And, you know, Khalasna, we're sick of it. We're tired of it. It's getting to be really old. All right? And I think there is a tendency to look at Lebanon not as a country with its own specificities, with its vast internal diversity, but really just as a, a stage, a stage setting for other things that are going to take place. Um, that, I think, was very pronounced within the Bush administration. And there seems to be some signs of hope that the Obama administration is not going to make the same mistakes. Um, but I believe I'm being asked to conclude. So hope to take up more of this in a bit. Graham? Well, I'd like to say I feel very fortunate to be the last speaker on the last panel after all these days. And so I, I, think I want to thank you, John. It's really appreciated. Second is I also feel bad following Lori. You know, she, she worries about the starting of her career 21 years ago when I'm thinking that it was 42 years ago that my wife and I moved to Beirut. And I went to AUB and then taught there for a couple of years. And, and so it seems like a long period of time. But what I like to do is, as when we're talking about reforming policy and talking about it, one of the things that policymakers and people here in Washington have difficulty doing is challenging their assumptions. 
And that's one of the problems. We get locked into a group think in Washington on any Middle Eastern issue, and we accept a certain vision rather than changing as the time changes or seeing the world differently. People evolve, people change, ideas change, and we even have the wrong ideas sometimes, believe that or not, and we need to look at those things and see what I mean. I thought what I would do, and this is, this is the great fortune I have. I spend a lot of time working on Capitol Hill so I can get most of my ideas in what it takes to ride the train from the House office building to the Capitol, because that's all the time you have with a member to get these ideas across. So I will be as quick as I can. What do I mean is we need to start looking at certain things. And I'll use Lebanon as the example. I was really jealous of the Arab-Israeli panel, because when I listened to him, I said, there, we've discussed these issues for so long, the problems are clear. But when we get into Lebanon, we get into Syria, the parameters aren't quite as clear. When we talk to people, people have different viewpoints, and we really need to have, a, we don't have a consensus of what all the words mean even. For example, here in Washington, when we talk of Lebanon and we speak of foreign intervention, what do we mean? We mean Iran and Syria. But for people in Lebanon, there's a lot more people who are foreign interventionists, including us, including other Arab states. These are all foreign interventionists. And they all get involved in Lebanese affairs. The second thing is, as Lori said, the Lebanese will tell you, the reason we can't do something is because of the foreign intervention. If only the Syrians and the Saudis can agree, then we can form a cabinet. Well, the Syrians and Saudis agree, and now there's another reason for them not forming a cabinet. The Lebanese have to form a cabinet if the Lebanese are going to do it. No one else can do it for them, and they could do it. The problem with foreign intervention in Lebanon is that the Lebanese are playing local politics and each one wants to have their foreign backer. And the foreign backer is designed to strengthen them against their domestic opponent. The Lebanese are the ones who bring the foreigners into the country and the foreigners fall into this trap. And the Lebanese, not only that, they're terrific at selling their views to the foreigner. They, they, they sit there and they, want to, they know what they want from you and they're gonna convince you that what you are doing, you are the only people who can possibly help them because you're so smart and clever and you agree with us on all of these issues. When I was listening to a March 14th spokesman come to Washington over the last several years, I could close my eyes and say, that's Bashir Jamal from 1980. Because they're trying to do the same thing. They're trying to sell their position to us as Americans as being what's really interested in Lebanon. We have to be clever. We have to look at this. We have to pay attention. Or you look at other, other things. You think about, Hezbollah is another example. For us, Hezbollah is, is, is the terrorist organization. But in Lebanon, Hezbollah is disliked by some people and admired by others. But one thing you can't deny about Hezbollah, Hezbollah today represents the Shia community more than any other organization. I was an election observer in Sur and Ben Shabal in the South. It was, everybody was excited and supported the Amal Hezbollah ticket. Why? Because it represented the community. They're united more than any other community in Lebanon. So what does that mean? If you don't deal with Hezbollah, you don't deal with the Shia community. So somehow we have to rethink the way we approach the issue. Not that we have to agree with them, not that we have to support the awful things they have done, but they represent one of the largest, if not the largest, community in Lebanon. You have to deal with them. As Americans, you can't ignore them. They're there. Now also, let's take the Syrian role. It's, 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 it's a perfect example. I have to be a true confession. 
I was an ex extreme critic of the Syrian role in Lebanon. When the Syrian army went into Lebanon in 1976, I am a guy who wrote the memo to the Secretary of State that said, if the Syrians get into Lebanon, Mr. Ambassador, <laughs> it'll be difficult to ever get them out. That said, if they don't go into Lebanon in 1976, the catastrophe that would befall the people of Lebanon in the fighting would be awful. And the Syrians were the only one to prevent, it, present, prevent that catastrophe. But after occupation, the, the intervention became an occupation. And, and, and he was confined that if, you long, if people stay in a country too long, after they've moved in military for good reasons, they become occupation forces and not helpful. And the other thing we say today, the way we made the Lebanese political system is March 14th was anti-Syrian and March 8th was pro-Syrian. That is a silly dilemma. Most Lebanese across the political spectrum, the overwhelming majority, were happy to see the army of Syria leave. They were pleased, but they differed over how best to have a relationship with Syria. You had those who wanted confrontation with Syria, and that was the way to do it, and to use the United States and others to force that confrontation, and those who said, if we confront the Syrians, and we are seen as a threat to the Syrians, the Syrians will intervene in our society, because they have interest here. That's the point. Whatever you want to say about Syria, Syria has as much or more interest than any other country in the region in Lebanon. And they're not going to walk away from those interests because they're vital to their own national interests. What has to be worked out is a system between Syria and Lebanon that protects Syrian interests and protects Lebanese independence. And all we can do as outsiders, and we are outsiders, is facilitate that process. What we need to do through all the Middle East is question our premises, question what we do, and constantly rethink what we do. Because I'll tell you, anybody who's been around the Middle East, as long as I have, I have been terribly wrong over the years. I like to say, every time I get up in the morning and I want to say something about the Middle East, I remind myself that in 1977, when President Sadat went to the Egyptian parliament and said, I will go to Jerusalem if invited, you're looking at the person who wrote the memo to the President of the United States that said he will never go. He was there three weeks later. Any of us who've ever done this have been humbled by having to deal with the Middle East. That's why you have to constantly re-examine how you look at it. Thank you, Graham. Um, I'm going to take the prerogative as, as moderator to bundle some questions that um, have come in. Uh, and I think this is largely for you, Mr. Ambassador. Uh, <laughs> surprise, surprise. Uh, there are a number of impediments to uh, a, a relationship, a, a better relationship between the United States and Syria. Um, they are your relationship with Hezbollah and Hamas, the uh, fact that you're on the list of state supporters of terrorism and the sanctions regime. How, um, how, ca how can we move forward? Which ones of those can you live with and move forward? Which ones are 
red lines and you cannot move forward and how complicating are they to, um, should we be fortunate enough to proceed with peace negotiations? Uh, thank you. Well, in, in the past, these issues were there, but this did not prevent uh, uh, previous U.S. administrations from engaging with Syria. I'm talking about uh, uh, Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan, uh, Bush Sr., and Clinton. Uh, I hope I did not miss anybody. So these issues were always there. There will always be this, this uh, 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 profound disagreement between Syria and the United States of America. The United States of America is an ally and a friend of Israel. We understand this. We are not asking the United States of America uh, to, to change its positions on Israel. Uh, however, we are disturbed by the fact that the United States happily lives with the crimes committed by Israel. This is not the Syrian ambassador describing the deeds of Israel. This is a number, a large number of, of world organizations that have, that have uh, monitored, observed what Israel has been doing, both in Lebanon in 2006 and in Gaza uh, last year. And, and the issues are there. The United States, when I sit with officials from the State Department, they will say to us, your relations with a terrorist organization like uh, uh, Hezbollah, and I will tell them, correction, with a, with a national resistance movement like Hezbollah that fought successfully and drove the Israeli occupation, the Israeli military forces outside from Lebanon. Those are Lebanese guys fighting in Lebanon against Israeli soldiers in Lebanon. And then they will say, and your support for uh, the terrorist movement Hamas, and I will always be sure to, cor to say, correction please, the democratically elected representative of the Palestinian people. Hmm? The principles that you guys are supposed to be advocating across the whole world. These are, uh, as you can see, these are profound differences between Syria and the United States. And this is why, however, the difference is, these differences were always there. With the Clinton people, they understood that the only way, the only way to address these issues is not to focus on them, but to look at the, at the root problem, the Middle East, the Arab-Israeli conflict. And this is what's happening today with the Obama administration. They know that if they are going to sit with us and say to us, sever your relations with this or that group, we will say, sorry, it's a non-starter. Hmm? It's a non-starter. This is our, our region, our national existence, our... The Palestinians are our brothers and sisters. The Golan is our territory. Lebanon is our sister country. What are you talking about telling us what we should and we shouldn't do in our region? Hmm? These are our vital national interests. Having said this, if, if, you, if, if you really look, if you really scrutinize the nature of the relationship between Syria and the United States, you will discover that we have a very strong, solid common ground. You guys, you say that you want peace to prevail in the Middle East. This is exactly what we are saying. You say that you believe that you want to work for achieving peace. Well, we are saying this explicitly and publicly. We want to be a part of the solution. We want to be part of the political process leading to peace. All those issues can be regarded in the, in the, in the, uh, according to the famous uh, 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 adage of the glass half empty or half are full. If you want to focus on them, of course, relations will never improve. However, if you want to improve relations, the only way to improve relations, as, 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 at least this is our perception in Syria, is the, to address the core issue. 
The core issue is the Arab-Israeli conflict. You address this issue, and everything will fit into the equation. Everything will fit into the equation. Uh, sorry, one word. The sanctions and, and the embargoes are just a byproduct, a byproduct of, of the same mentality, the, the flagrant absolute bias towards Israel and total disregard of anything that Israel is doing in our part of the world. Thank you. Uh, again, I'm going to... Uh... I'd like to bundle two questions, and, um, and Amba Mr. Ambassador and Graham and, and Lori take a shot at it. There, there are people in the audience who are interested in, in you speaking to the issue of why is it that Israel and Syria look for a group in Lebanon to support rather than <clears throat> supporting the, the elected government of Lebanon? And um, one of the questioners wants to know who it is that the Israelis are currently supporting as their cat's paw in Israel. I well, well I, I, I think Dr. Bannerman has already addressed this question. However, what he did not mention uh, uh, is the following, and this is my, my modest uh, addition to what he said. Despite the fact that I disagreed with certain things you have said, <laughs> but, but no problem. You admitted that uh, nobody knows about the Middle East, really. Um, the, the truth, the, the important thing that happened uh, uh, was not the Saudi-Syrian summit in Damascus. Uh, it was the capstone, the culmination of something more important that happened two weeks before in Jeddah, when the Syrians and the Saudis agreed for the first time that we should transcend the Lebanese Saudi politics. We, both the Saudis and the Syrians, agreed that we should not be held captive by the, the eternal dip differences among the Lebanese. And we agreed, the Saudis and the Syrians, that uh, as, as, as Arab nations, we should free ourselves from the Lebanese moras. Whether they want to form their cabinet or not, whether they will have a 10 plus 5 plus uh, 15, or I, I don't want to go into this. We told the Saudis, we are not interested at all, at all, with the political bickering in Lebanon. The only thing, the only thing right now that is of great interest to us in Lebanon is preserving and protecting the national resistance because this is a, an integral, integral part of our vision towards the Arab-Israeli conflict. This is the only thing that is really today of, of, of uh, importance to us vis-a-vis -vis Lebanon. Everything else is something for the Lebanese to address and to discuss. We have learned this lesson the difficult way. I believe our brothers, the Saudis, have learned also this lesson the difficult way, but we have both learned this lesson. Two weeks ago, when the deputy foreign minister of Syria was here in Washington, D.C., meeting with U.S. officials at the State Department and at the White House, uh, Lebanon was discussed. It was not the major issue, but it was discussed. Our reply to them was, guys, mature up, learn the lesson. Let the Lebanese discuss their issues among themselves. Let our relationship with you, United States and Syria, also go beyond the Lebanese uh, Saudi political ground. Otherwise, uh, you will be caught in this quagmire forever. It's, it's, it's eternal. And in a way, I hope the Americans are also maturing in this direction. 
uh, I will stop here. I hope, by the way, and I know I'm being cynical, I, I hope the Israelis will not learn this lesson. They will continue, they will continue uh, 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 entangling themselves with the Lebanese uh, Moras because they will get their fingers burnt. Okay, this is a, this is a question for Laurie. I, I think we both I was going to say. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Excuse mm-hmm. me. Go ahead. Okay. Um, the question asked about Syria and Israel playing games in Lebanon um, seemed to leave out a key issue, which is Palestine and the Palestinians. All right, that wasn't even mentioned. And that goes back to what I just said, that you, know, you tend to look at Lebanon and have your own model of what's going on there and miss some important things. Like they say in Arabic, if you forget something important, they say, you know, you prayed without remembering the prophet. Right? You have to remember the prophet's name to pray, and if you didn't do that, then you know, it's kind of silly to have gone to all the trouble to pray. And when we ignore the Palestinian tragedy, when we ignore the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it is very easy to get into all of these little labyrinthine... In many respects, I would agree with um, the ambassador that we end up with a lot of red herrings. Um, now, the question about who is playing the role of Israel's cat's paw in Lebanon these days. I think that's it's kind of a mistaken question, but to a certain extent because of the way that the Bush administration responded to the events of 2005 in the um, aftermath of Rafiq Hariri's assassination, um, that a wide variety of people who were representing many different backgrounds, secular, religious, favorable to Syria in some respects, against Syria in other respects, were all put into this one category. And in Lebanon, it was sort of an amorphous thing that was developing the sit-ins in Martyr Square. And in Lebanon, it was being called Intifada al-Istiqlal, the independence intifada or uprising. And then within like maybe 72 hours, that whole phenomenon had been repackaged in America and branded as the Cedar Revolution, which I don't really think anybody had used that term on the ground in Lebanon. So in effect, the United States, by so clearly reaching out, saying, ah, look, you know, this is what we've been talking about. These are our people put the March 14th group, and many of them, you know, happily went along with this, kind of put them in a position where they were seen as being American or Israeli cat's paws in the situation. And it really didn't help for the United States to intervene and decide they're going to brand this group as the new vanguards of participatory democracy and freedom throughout the entire region. That probably hurt the March 14th group or the people who were part of that before it got known as the March 14th group. I think that probably was much more damaging to them than anything else, which brings us to you know, the really sad fact, and it's something that one is hesitant to say in Washington, and it's certainly not a very diplomatic thing to say, is that just as I was saying before that Hezbollah in focusing on and responding to the grave injustices of the Palestinian situation. It has moral capital. It has a moral voice. And right now, the United States doesn't have any moral voice in the region. It's just gone. That is a big challenge to bring that back, obviously. But 
to look at Lebanon only as an arena for Syrian and Israeli cat's paws and to leave out the entire dimension of Palestine, I think, tells us, it gives us a good example of what Graham was just mentioning and what I was trying to bring across, though. Let me just make quick, two quick comments. First, first of all, there's no group in Lebanon that supports Israel, period. I mean, it's, it, there were times in the, in the early 80s where there were people who did that that doesn't exist anymore. Anybody who works with Israel is a traitor, is seen that way across the political spectrum. That doesn't happen. The other thing I want to mention is the problem is words. And the ambassador used the expression, as long as we support the national resistance, which on the surface sounds absolutely reasonable expression. But in fact, in, the term, in terminology in Lebanon, if you mean the natural, national resistance, that's, a, that's the words used by Hezbollah. And therefore, it has a different meaning in the Lebanese context. And so therefore, I'm not sure what was meant here, but we need to be cautious on the use of words. Okay, I would say that this audience is very interested in um, the issue of foreign intervention in Lebanon and whether the remarks we've made are on the mark or not. Um, I would like to take, uh, I'd like to just move in another direction just because we haven't touched on this and it's so important. Um, and the question basically is, can Syria really reach a peace settlement with Israel? And would such a negotiation, should it begin, uh, really just be a way to shift the attention away from the Palestinian issue? And that's a question from the audience. I'd like to also put that in the larger context of, of whether a single-track Syrian-Israeli um, negotiation is possible and something Syria seeks. Well, uh, uh, I'll try to be as brief and succinct as possible, but it's a very important question. Originally, at the beginning, Syria uh, believed that single trucks are, or bilateral Israeli-Arab trucks are dangerous and they are bad for the peace process. Uh, uh, we, we, uh, we were against single Arab countries engaging Israel in peace talks. We always advocated at the beginning a comprehensive Arab-Israeli uh, uh, resolution of the conflict that will include Egypt, Palestine, Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon simultaneously. But of course, uh, we are realists. We are not uh, Don Quixote. Uh, Egypt signed its, uh, its, uh, its uh, own agreement with Israel, followed by Germ Jordan. The Palestinian has the have the Oslo agreement. At one point, at one point, Syria was left with no option but to to uh, uh, negotiate a, a peace agreement with Israel through the the uh, brokerage of the United States particularly during the Clinton administration. Now things have changed. Now we have a new US administration that is going back to the fundamental uh, uh, premise that Syria always believed in. Today, the, the, the Obama administration and former Senator Mitchell are telling us that they are profoundly convinced that peace in the Middle East can only be achieved if it is comprehensive. So they, at least now, forget a little bit about, about the, 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 the trap that I hope they are not falling into about the settlements and such things. At least they are 
adopting a comprehensive approach in which they believe that for this conflict to be resolved once and for good, it should include the Palestinians, the Syrians, and the Lebanese on one hand and the Israelis on the other hand. So in, in a way, I can tell you that today, uh, 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 this is the name of the game here in Washington, D.C. They want a comprehensive approach to the, uh, to the uh, Arab-Israeli conflict. And I think this is fair and logical. Let us see how, we'll, how things will evolve. I think that's the last word. Thank you all for staying. <laughs>